the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. It was Tuesday night in May. Susanna Maria Feldman. She went out with her friends. They were a little bit rowdy, but generally a good group of kids. But Susanna didn't come home that night because she had been raped, strangled, and buried in the dead of night. Her body was dumped into a ditch leading to a railroad track near the refugee camp in her, in her hometown of Wiesbaden. That's in Germany. Susanna adored her five-year-old sister, cherished her family. She was 14. They found her body two weeks later. By then, Ali Bashar, the 20-year-old man who had raped and strangled Susanna, fled Germany, along with his parents and five siblings, all using fake names. They went back to their home in Iraq. Ali Bashar had previously been accused of robbery, assault on a female police officer. He had also been suspected in the rape of an 11-year-old girl who lived in the same refugee station as he did. He was a refugee, yes, did I point that out? He arrived in the country October 2015 as part of the wave of puppy-eyed refugees that flooded Europe, who many European countries so proudly gave in and gave shelter to refugees. Susanna was of Jewish-German heritage. The Central Council of Jews in Germany said in a statement, A young life has been put in a cruel way. Our deep compassion applies to the relatives and the friends. Susanna was a member of the Jewish community. At present, much of the background is still unclear. We expect the law enforcement authorities to provide rapid and comprehensive information, as well as tough consequences for the perpetrators. I tell you this story today because it's not just about Susanna. She's not alone, not by far. She is just one of a growing number of young women and young girls who are being sexually violated, abused, and in imaginable nightmares, murdered. Then they're tossed into a ditch, left in trash bins. There is no respect for life. Europe, this is what so many people were afraid of. This is what the so-called naysayers were afraid of. The governments are still not responding. The world, generally speaking, is not racist. There are racists. There are racist policies. But generally speaking, I think, at least in America, we are not racist We are observant. Multiculturalism is the problem. If you come to our country, come to our country knowing what we offer and what we do. If you want to bring your country, your traditions, and they involve killing people, raping people, seeing others as insects, infidels, vermin, whatever it is, you're not welcome here. And it's about time our government 
all around the world starts to recognize that there is a problem. And the good people that really are refugees are going to suffer the consequences because of their inability and unwillingness to act. Because the worst part of this story is this is just the beginning. There is an unbelievable story that just does not make any sense to me at all other than this is what happens when a government just starts passing laws and is is not using their brain at all. What is the point of prison? The point of the prison is to punish people for their crimes, but rehabilitate them so when they come out of prison, they are good citizens, right? Isn't that the point? There is a, uh, there is a case now of Matthew Charles. It is absolutely unbelievable. In the 90s, he was nabbed for selling crack. He spent 21 years in prison. He got out of prison on parole. He has completely changed his life. His community loves him. He goes to church all the time. He's got a job. He volunteers in, in I think, soup kitchens. This guy is a model citizen. Well, the state decided they made a mistake because... Um, You've got to serve until 2027. It's on the it's on the books here. You you got to serve it till 2027. So they took a guy who had been out on uh, parole for how many years? Do two, three? I don't even know. I think two years, and is a model citizen. He's going back to prison until 2027. This is this has got to stop. This is wrong. And there's something we can do about it. Now, he has an attorney, and uh, our, and, his, and Charles' attorney is on with us now, uh, Sean Hopwood. Hello, Sean. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Sure. So tell me what we don't know about Matthew. Well, I think one of the unusual things about Matthew's case is that, one, he got an extremely long sentence for a drug crime. 35 years, which in the federal system, you have to serve 85% of that. So best case scenario, he's got to do 30, 31 years. Um, and I think what's remarkable about his case is he's done 21 years in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Not only did there's no indication he had any acts of violence or committed any other crime in prison, he didn't get a single minor disciplinary report. And how how rare is how rare is that, Matthew? I have never seen it. And to put it in context, I don't know if your listeners know my story, but I served 11 years in federal prison myself, and I'm often held up as the model of rehabilitation. And I got two incident reports in 11 years, half of what Matthew served. Wow. So Matthew is quite the amazing man, and then he gets out and just makes a community and with his church in Nashville and volunteers. You know, the first two years out of prison after serving a long sentence is very precarious for people. They're trying to get some stability and get their life back on track. 
And Matthew, despite all of that, went and served at a soup kitchen every Saturday for the homeless. Um, and what's interesting is the Department of Justice had a chance. The judge asked them, will you dismiss a charge and let this man go free rather than re-locking him up for 10 more years? And the Department of Justice said no. Why? Well, they, what they would say is they're just following the rule of law. But that doesn't make any sense because federal prosecutors decide what to charge and what not to charge every day in federal court across the country. There are many times people break federal law and prosecutors never charge it. A lot. A lot. A lot. Well, you know, the U.S. Congress does not value your liberty or anyone else in this country because what most Americans don't know is that the Congress has found that there are 5,000 federal criminal laws, 5,000 things that are so serious that the Congress thinks that you could potentially go to jail or prison for. So, um, first of all, is Matthew, is he back in prison yet? He is in county jail in Kentucky awaiting transfer to another prison. But we are hopeful that the president, President Trump, will grant him clemency and return him back home to the community that desperately wants him back. I, I, I read a, I read an article about his going away party and he was so gracious. And uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be. What was his attitude as he, as he went on? You know, if it was me, I would be very bitter and angry, but that's not Matthew's character. Uh, Matthew kind of left the bitter, angry guy behind in prison many, many years ago. He he has been, you know, he's sad and devastated because he finally got his life back on track only to have it all ripped away from him. But I tell you, he is also a very humble man, and he has been just overwhelmed with the number of people who, you know, his change.org petition is close to 100,000 signatures. We did a lot of interviews last week, including NBC Nightly News, and he's just been overwhelmed at the number of people from all political stripes who are supporting him and his quest for clemency. By the way, that, that petition is posted at glenbeck.com if you want to go sign it. Uh, what, what's the goal for this, Sean? Well, the goal is to just get enough public support that the president decides this is worth doing. And the White House is aware of Matthew's case. Um, I, don't, I, I have yet to run into anyone who thinks that it was a smart or wise idea to send him back to prison for 10 years. Uh, so I'm hopeful that something will happen and that the president will sign a clemency petition and Matthew can go back home to his girlfriend and his church community. Like in a theoretical world, right, if we had an Elysium or the Matrix where we could test these things and you had criminals who had, you know, did bad things and you could somehow test the fact that maybe they could return and you could prove it, you could release people all the time. The issue is, of course, that would be incredibly risky to release them into the actual population if you weren't sure. Here's a case in which we essentially got the opportunity to test we got we were able to release this guy to see if he could blend into community to see if his life had been turned around he's a we, success we were, story we were, it's a success story it was proven that he could and yet on what seems to be a ridiculous technicality they're throwing him back into prison i mean it is yeah. it's it's, an, it's unthinkable
There, there are thousands of Matthew Charleses in federal prison that just haven't had the opportunity he has to get out. Um, the great irony about the American criminal justice system is, one, we think that we are the land of the free, but on the other hand, America incarcerates its citizens at a greater rate than almost any other country on the planet. And two, the great irony of it is, the longer someone spends in corrections, the less likely they generally are to come out and live law-abiding, successful lives. Prison doesn't make people better. Right, and you don't... I can't imagine going to prison for 20 years, 21 years here, and, and being able to even function on the outside it was a different world that he lived in in the 1990s completely different when i was released in 2008 i had never been on the internet never seen an ipad an iphone or an ipod one of the things i quickly realized when i went to pick up the paper and look at the classified ad section for jobs was no one advertises jobs in the classified section and matthew had to overcome all those hurdles too just the stress of so much change when you've been incarcerated that long. And yet he was able to overcome all of that uh, and show that he's a changed person, which just, you know, in a perfect world, the Department of Justice would have recognized his rehabilitation and just cut him loose. Sean, do you have time to stay with us for a little bit longer? I do. Okay. If you stay on with us, because I've got a few this is a fascinating story and should it be more than fascinating to people. We need to take action on this. You can go to glenbeck.com and sign the petition uh, and, and get the president's attention. And we've got to correct this. There's, there's something good happening in America right now. And that is we're starting to come together on one thing. And that is prison reform. It doesn't work. Let's talk about prison reform. How do we do this? And how do we get the people out of prison that shouldn't be there anymore? Sean Hopwood, uh, he is the attorney uh, for Matthew Charles. He's also an associate professor of Georgetown Law. We can continue our conversation here in just a second. Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. Addicted to outrage. A new book from best-selling author Glenn Beck. Because everybody needs to be outraged about something that is entirely meaningless. Something that really makes no difference or is none of my business whatsoever. But I need to be really outraged. Addicted to outrage. To stir us up and get us toward anger. And we are addicted. Addicted to outrage. Pre-order your copy now at Amazon.com or download a preview on iTunes. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. Sean Hopwood, he is the lawyer representing Matthew Charles, an incredible story. Um, He's an associate professor of Georgetown Law. Um, Sean, we have about three and a half minutes. Can you just can you tell me your story a little bit? Yeah, so my story kind of is not too dissimilar from Matthew Charles. In 1997 and 1998, as a 21-, 22-year-old, I robbed five banks and was wow. for 12 years and three months in federal prison and got to prison and learned the law and had two briefs that I prepared for other guys and friends of mine in prison that were granted by the United States Supreme Court. 
And then I started winning cases in federal court all over, even though I had never been to law school and hadn't even taken freshman English or and then didn't have an undergraduate degree either. That is unbelievable. This is just like Suits. It's my favorite show. This is exactly what happened in Suits. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can't believe that's happening. So you get a, Ga- a Gates Foundation scholarship when you leave and you go to the University of Washington. And now you're a professor at George Washington yeah. Law. I uh, got out in 2009. I finished my bachelor's degree. I went to the University of Washington up in Seattle School of Law. Uh, My first job out of law school was clerking for Judge Janice Rogers Brown, a very conservative uh, judge on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And then I came to Georgetown as a teaching fellow for two years, and I went on the market to be a law professor. And Georgetown kept me. Unbelievable. And, uh, Unbelievable. I have just the most amazing job where I get to help people every day. So, Sean, um, the odds that if the president doesn't act, that uh, Matthew's going to get out of prison? Well, he'll get out, but he'll have to do nine or ten years. But I'm trying not to think about that because I really think the president who, you know, I was in the White House about a month ago when the president talked about the need to reform our prisons and that it doesn't serve anyone well for people to go to prison and come out worse off Correct. rather than better. Correct. And he talked about the need for America to be the land of second chances and even third chances. And, you know, knowing he said that and believes that and knowing that the White House is also working on a prison reform bill, I've been working with them for months on that. I think there's a good likelihood that the president will see the injustice for Matthew. Sean, him lose. that is fantastic news. We will continue to co- follow this case. Um, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Tell Matthew to keep his uh, chin up. There are people from all walks of life that are uh, that are behind him. Uh, we urge you to go to glenbeck.com. It's posted right there on the front page where you can go. You'll click. It'll take you right to the petition. You can sign the petition there uh, and and help Matthew Charles. Let's write this wrong. Seemingly, there's been Thank a support. You, Thanks for talking about Matthew's case. And, and I'm just hopeful that he's going to get to go home. Me Thank, too. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate yep. it. God go bless. Glenbeck.com is where you can find the petition. There's really been support ac- across the aisle. Both yeah. sides agree that this is a miscarriage of justice. This is something we can unite on. And I think Trump will do this eventually. I do I, too. We just need to get it in front of him. Yes. So please go sign the petition. Uh, it's that White House petition. Uh, you can do it now at glenbeck.com. Tell a friend. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. So let me give you a fact that I want you to really remember and spread this far and wide. New uh, new uh, figures have have come out. You know, we are the worst as as a nation. We're horrible at everything. Right. Well, according to um, the Giving USA Foundation's annual report on philanthropy. I love this story. We have just set a record high for charitable giving in the last 12 months. Yeah, what do we give? Like $40? Uh, Stingy bastards we have in this well, we, country. $30. By we, the way, this does not include any government giving at all. Could I? Could I? May I? No, I'm just trying just, to help. I'm just okay. uh, I'm a helper. Well, you're not really helping. I'm a helper. You're not helping. So here's it's what I do. I help. 
So <laughs> America gave $410 billion last year. $410 billion. It has never been that high. In fact, we eclipse the world in total dollars given from our own wallet. And the vast majority, 287 building, a billion, was given by people and not corporations or foundations, hmm. but by average people. Now, vast majority. If you happen to be traveling internationally and someone says, well, you know, your country stinks on ice, you'd say, well, you know, without the ice, you stink. <laughs> but that's a different story. How much money do you, France, give as a country because we're not just charitable in the u.s we also provide the most foreign aid by far and no one comes close to us so the united states department requested 51 billion last year to give to foreign aid now americans gave over 400 billion Hmm. but the government gave took money from us and gave an additional 51 billion just for some perspective that's 30 billion more than germany uh that is 30 million more than the uk 40 billion more than france and 45 billion more than canada no country in the history of the world has ever been this charitable. That is truly American exceptionalism. And that comes from our Judeo-Christian upbringing. (sighs) I gotta say it. I'm gonna say it. How dare you? I'm gonna say it. Don't. You're a bad person. Don't. Uh, Not only that, but the private giving, uh, as a percentage of GDP, because everybody else will say, well, you got 300 million people. Of course, you gave more. As a percentage of GDP, we gave double the second place country. Wow. Doubled the second place country. And I mean, it's triple or quadruple places like Germany and, you know, crappy France. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. <laughs> Is that the new name? Yeah, it's called crappy France. Wow. Yeah. Wow. They officially, because they thought, well, yeah, I mean, it's. Why deny reality? My country's crappy France. France. It works. Mm-hmm. It works. Okay, mm-hmm. that's good. That is a, that is amazing, and that's a what a cultural thing, right? It's because of our it. upbringing of a couple of things. Mm-hmm. One, Benjamin Franklin. What is the American religion? It's not Catholic, Protestant, or anything else. The American religion is there is a God. We should serve Him, and the best way to serve Him is to serve our fellow man. That's what that's the stock of this nation. So we've always done that. Plus, we have always looked to ourselves to fix problems. We don't stand around like everybody else does. Why doesn't the country do anything about that? We do it. We do it. And the bigger our government becomes, the more socialized our government becomes, the less we will do for ourselves. That's what's happening. And the world will weep when the lights go out on on America. They will weep. They will have no idea the good that we have done. There's so many new developments as well that are that are really positive here in the United States. I think we're going in the right direction. Thank you for pointing that out, Mm -hmm. uh, Stu, because the University of 
California at Santa Barbara, UCSB, oh. hosts a website uh, that's controlled by the sociology department. It encourages parents, finally, somebody's saying it. Finally. It encourages parents to allow their young children to participate in sexual play. What? Wait, you Perfectly mean Perfectly normal. Wait, you Perfectly mean, healthy. Hold it. You mean mm-hmm. your college students? No, no. No, this is... Uh, they actually say that uh, sexual play is most common between the ages of four and seven. And it's, quote, completely normal, generally harmless, and encourages... Uh, they're encouraging parents to allow these behaviors. So you try to be positive when you see this happen. If your seven-year-old hmm. is playing mm-hmm. with a four-year-old, is that? I mean, that's perfect. Perfectly good. normal. What? What do they generally mean by harmless? Se- what do they mean generally <laughs> harmless? Yeah, you know what? They don't accept that with guns, do they? No, we have they do not. Over no. three hundred million guns. How many are used in crime? What they are. Generally harmless. harmless. <laughs> uh, there's a section on the website that reads: Children might display affection to their friends by hugging and kissing or touching each other's genital genitals, which is perfectly normal. Uh, parents should not react in a negative way because children are just exploring. So you should encourage this kind of behavior. If the child is performing these activities excessively in public. Why you might sit them down, have a talk with them about how this should be done in private. So if it's happening like at a Taco Bell booth, you want to maybe put a stop to it. Yes. Don't try to thwart the activity, of course, altogether. You don't want that. Wait, wait, wait. Just tell them to do it behind closed doors. Weren't these the same people that that were telling us that we had to tell our kids which parts of their body was private and which part was a no touch? So that nobody will touch? No touch zones? Yeah. When was it when we started predicting that they would have to make this they would have to normalize things like pedophilia and for the last several years we've we've seen this now they're talking about sex among kids themselves like a four and a seven year old inappropriately touching is perfectly normal and generally harmless but how far away are we from telling us all that it's fine if adults engage in this activity you have Have to. to if you're being consistent yeah you have to there's absolutely nothing anymore really that's verboten there's nothing that you should say to your kids i think that word hey is. don't do that 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 word makes me think of the white german do i make you uncomfortable the, yeah we're yeah looking for the uh, masters. were you uncomfortable there absolutely yeah, that was a trigger was. word for me it was it somewhat was. Although Although trigger word is also a trigger word because it has the word trigger in it oh my gosh now and that you makes me have made guns. me uncomfortable i'm sorry i, I wish you wouldn't have brought up that image in wow. my head I'm sorry. Wow, you, Stu? Are I you uncomfortable a, as well? I'm looking. I'm hoping for a, a soundproof glass case that you I can get into. In. I can just stay in all the time. You know, it, the University of Utah has a cry closet. Uh, we should <laughs> install one of those here. Yeah, I'm sorry, what? There's a cry closet where you go and cry um, and get all emotional about your finals exams. Uh, well, they've set them up pillows, all over so campus. It has, it has pillows. pillows. It has pillows. It does. It. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a, if you can, <laughs> a cry closet. Uh huh. Well, if you're going to, I mean, and that's, by the way, we want to make sure that people understand it's okay to cry at school about a test. Yeah. But uh, we just want a safe place for you to And you might be crying because your parents told you not to touch other kids' genitals when you were a child. And And you're still harmed by that. Because they may have reacted negatively. They may have, and they shouldn't have. They should not have to. They have a cry closet? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they do. 
Is yeah. there is there any chance that anybody's ever going to grow up anymore? Is there any chance? Can you imagine a cry cl- a cry closet? I know. We used to look up when I was a kid. We would look up to college students as like they were grown ups. They were the cool grown ups. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine uh, they're pansies now. Yeah, you're like, yeah, I was. You know, I I went and I oh I somebody. Somebody used some trigger language, and I had to go into the cry closet and cry all day. You'd be like, <laughs> what? <laughs> You're eight. Okay, I don't want you touching me anymore. You are weird. <laughs> Isn't it, though? Uh, because I, I used to have this uh, view that, you know, we would talk about this before. Like, oh, well, it's great. You know, you, you can have your participation trophies in your cry closets, mm-hmm. and my kids will be the ones you're serving uh, at your uh, at your job where you can't do anything because mm-hmm. you have you're completely unprepared for the world. Yes, yeah. and I've converted this belief because I now believe that these people who are building the cry closets and and crying inside the cry closets, it will become so universal that cry closets will just be the thing. That was what society will be. It's like we've talked about, like with you know global warming before. You can come out and you can say. Well, global, you know, forget that a global warming is real or not. Talk about the idea that, you know, they're encouraging you to do things that absolutely, with all certainty, even if you believe every piece of nonsense that Al Gore has ever said, will not solve the problem. You know, doing things like, well, you know, you need to unplug your uh, appliances and and when you need, you know, all these little steps that mm-hmm. will make a quote unquote difference when they know. You know, it's just about selling the idea, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about actually making a difference. You can't scientifically make a difference with any of those, you know, causes. So I used to think, well, eventually, like, people will realize that, this sure, we want to be clean, mm-hmm. but, you know, this is stupid. And the, and, and the, and the mm-hmm. reality of the situation, the reality of fossil fuels being incredibly useful to build, I don't know, a civilization on, at some point, people just get older and realize this. They're so on it when they're they're dopey kids, and they re- eventually realize it later on in life. I no longer believe that's accurate at all. I now believe that those nonsensical ideas that are fed to teenagers just become the truth later on. Not that they're actually true, mm. but that they're just it's so widely believed and never challenged that they just adopt that as the entire civilization's policy. So you So we're screwed is what I was saying. You yes. are right. Because I've always felt No pulling back from this? No, no, no. What he's saying about how that just becomes the norm. What Well, I, yeah. I've always believed in self-evident truth. I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe there is Things aren't self-evident. They to are people. not self-evident to people. Mm-hmm. Your freedom is not self-evident. It, that is something that had to be carefully taught and studied and reasoned. Yeah. And then when that society had enough reason in it, it started going, wait a minute, I, I shouldn't have somebody else telling me what to do. Yeah. That, that, that's when it becomes self-evident. So it is quickly becoming self-evident that the dinosaurs that believe in cry rooms being funny or cry rooms being tragically sad because it makes you into a four-year-old that will never be prepared for life. That is going to be self-evident that we are wrong and the cry room is right. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, the first step well, was to kill common sense and reason. Well, and they've successfully done that. Are we not seeing this exact process happen with gender right now? 
Yes. Right? Like gender, yes. like again, like there was an idea. There's never, it's never been about hating someone or anything like that. It's just like, it's always been, there's been two genders and that's the way it was. Well, X and, and Y. And there was a, right, chromosomes, right? Like, and you'd think that eventually the, the chromosome thing works, it plays out and people understand that that's what it is, despite the crazy things that people would say. And what happens now is it just keeps moving down that road. And at for a while, I mean, if you go back 20 years, you'll see comedians like crazy making fun of concepts like this. They, they, were, they would mock them, mm. the idea that there were 100 genders. You don't know. Now it's only crazy conservatives who say 95 genders is, is not correct. And in 10 <laughs> right, years... because I believe there are... Hear me carefully. They, I think there are 250 <laughs> genders. I'm not part of these guys. They're haters. <laughs> and in 10 years... People will be like, do you know at one point they believe there were only 250 genders? Yeah. <laughs> it's true. That's, that's what will happen. It's true. It's amazing. You, can you believe they actually believed in genders at one point? Yeah. Do you see the fashion show that happened in London or Paris this weekend? I did not. With, with the guys who were wearing prosthetic bellies because we live in a world now where men can have children. Thank you. Finally. And uh, I mean... I've appeared pregnant for years, and I believe in that completely. I don't have to wear prosthetics. (laughs) I just cannot seem to give birth to this thing. So I saw a a local letter to the editor. It said, uh, something different is happening. I was recently told by a friend that our local paper is a conservative paper, and I felt once in a while the letters to the editor were written by conservative thinkers. There seems to be a change of late. I'm not sure if there's a change in the paper's role or if thinkers on the other side are stepping up to the plate, but both political parties seem so lost to their elected purpose of working for the people. They're overly focused on getting reelected and not going against their big money supporters. Last Sunday, I was watching Glenn Beck interviewed on CNN's Reliable Sources, and to my surprise, he held my attention when he spoke of Martin Luther King's call for reconciliation. He said both sides are just trying to win. We have to listen to one another. Uh, This uh, person writes in, uh, if we're going to continue to have a viable two-party system, we have to know what each party stands for and what they believe. And in my mind, Beck makes some very important points. I'm now reading two books about conservatives written by conservatives. To get our country back, intended by our founders, we have to step out of our comfort zone, listen, reflect, and reframe. This is fantastic. If we can have that honest discovery of, of, of each other and ask the Ford dealer about the Ford, not the Chevy dealer, ask the Ford dealer. Glenn, ask conservatives Beth, about conservatives, Mercury. liberals about liberals. Glenn Beck. Everybody, listen. Shh, quiet, 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 quiet. Listen. Can you hear it? The people who are working on Italian Job 3, the writers of Mission Impossible going, you've got to be kidding me. How come we didn't think of that? That's brilliant. The perfect heist. It's theatrical. It's historical. It has crypts and old uh, royal jewels and jet skis. This is the ultimate movie. It happened in broad daylight, 14th century cathedral on a sunny day in Sweden. Two men snuck into a cathedral somehow, according to the Associated Press. The two men stole a gold crown and an orb dating back to 1611. They were made for a king, King Carl the Ninth, and his funeral. 
jewel encrusted crown dating back to 1625 that was used with uh, Queen Christina's funeral. So they took the orb, the staff, and two crowns. Now, well, let me just give you the rest of the story. The items were on display at an exhibition. uh, And people were inside when all of this was just taken. Two men smashed the security glass, protecting the artifacts. Uh, The sirens went off. They grabbed the treasure they went outside. They hopped onto a couple of bicycles. They they uh, they were weighed down by the by the loot packed on the back, but they were in they were in custom made baskets for the bikes um, and infant carriers. Uh, then we're not really sure what happened. Either way, they made it to a nearby dock and hopped onto some jet skis. So they they made a heist of the stuff from the 14th century on jet skis. I love this story. I absolutely love this story. Um, they haven't found them. I mean, this is really despicable and it's horrible. Or is it? Is it? Stu, I would like you to weigh in on this. All right. Okay. It's, you know, 1600s. You're a king. Okay. They make you a crown. And then they put it in a, in a tomb with you. And then they just took it out recently to show it to everybody. It's been in a tomb for like, you know, three, four hundred years. Mm-hmm. I say these guys aren't at robbers as much as they are just the first archaeologists. <laughs> okay. It's uh I mean, so what's the difference between opening King Tut's tomb and taking everything that they left there that, you know, he's gonna take with him and this, you weren't using it. <laughs> well, and they stole it from someone who they stole it from. Huh? They stole it from somebody who already stole it. Right. I mean, they're ripping off a tomb. Right. Right? I mean... And they're dead. What are they going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? What? You're not going to take their shoes? I mean, if you need shoes and somebody's been buried in shoes, what? It's a waste of shoes. I need the shoes. Let me have the shoes. You're, you you're endor- the- just make sure you're endorsing just, grave robbery. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> saying. Well, after a while. I mean, not like shoes would probably be bad. Okay? Opening up for some shoes would be bad. Mm-hmm. And especially new. Oh, how nice are the shoes? Some shoes well, can be quite expensive. Like if they were the Pope shoes? Because those always are very fancy. Pope shoes are fancy? I, th- I know Pope hats are fancy. Yeah, the shoes are pretty fancy, too. And the mm. only reason why I know that is because of a drunken yeah, drunken mess I was one Christmas Eve, uh, you know, uh, at the Vatican uh, with the Pope and uh, ended up with <clears throat> me standing on a... <clears throat> Pew pointing at his shoes, going, "Look at his shoes, man! His, his shoes are fancy." <laughs> Wait, do we have a Let's, new story alert? Eh, we should probably Wait. not dwell on that story. No, anyway, well, I've never, never heard this. this. I think we need to move on. <laughs> Wait, no, uh, we need to move on I, here. <laughs> Wait, is that a dream? You know, that was a real story. It's uh, not a not a not a not a proud moment of my life. No. But we can make it into a proud moment of your life right no, now. I don't think you can. It also involves uh, talking nuns out of their tickets uh, to uh, to midnight mass. Uh, you know, I was twenty. You know, I was well, maybe twenty-five, and, uh, and maybe forty-five. No, no, oh, okay. no. I was definitely in my twenties, <laughs> okay, okay. and uh, it's not one of the prouder moments of my life. Uh, and I was with a friend, and uh, the story ends with a. Uh, with a very terse phone call from his very Catholic father, Uh-oh. uh who was 
happening to watch Midnight Mass that year from Chicago. And uh, he called. He called his son and said, was that you and Glenn standing on the chair pointing at the Pope? And all I remember was saying, I don't know what he's talking about. What are you talking about? It was very... How do we... I don't want to hear anything else you're about to say. No, we got to go on to other things, too. We just have to go on to other things. Don't act like this is a responsible broadcaster thing to do. (laughs) You just don't want to tell the story. How have I never heard this story before? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's you know, it's not one of those that you pull out like, hey, I just won an award. <laughs> this is this is not one that you pull out of the bag. <sighs> so I was uh you wanna do this or do you wanna go I mean we have addicted to outrage to play. We go we can only do one. What's it gonna be? You know you're trying to get out of it. And I'm that's just fine. saying I'm I just mean, I saying. guess it's your personal no, story. I'm, you make the decision. I I'll go either way. I don't think there's a question here. I want to know what happened to you at the Vatican on television, apparently. Is there footage of this? Probably at the Vatican archives. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Okay, so it's, I don't know, the mid or late 80s. And um, probably 1989, I think. And uh, I uh, had gone over to do a USO thing, um, you know, on an aircraft carrier. And... Then I decided to take a few weeks off and just, uh, you know, just hang out in Italy and and Germany and just kind of, you know, do what 20-year-olds do, I guess, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. drink. And uh, so uh, I I stayed there. And and this is really the beginning, I think, of my alcoholism. Because if you travel Europe, especially Italy, Italy alone, and you discover how good red wine is, they serve it by the bottle. Mm-hmm. And so every meal is another bottle of red wine. <laughs> so uh, my friend uh, joins me in the last week, and it's uh, Christmas week. And um, <clears throat> and he's very Catholic. And um, and uh, so he says, you know, I really want to go to, 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 to Christmas Eve uh, Mass. And I said, well, I think you need a ticket for that. And we don't have tickets. And he's like, ah, crap. So we spent, you know, all Christmas Eve, you know, just drinking and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and just kind of going around and just being, you know, uh, Christmas jovial Americans. Okay. Okay. And Uh uh, so about nine o'clock, we're completely hammered. And he says, you want to go? You want to get in? And I'm like. To the mass. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we're in St. Peter's Square. It's packed. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we can't, how are we going to get in? He's like, I have an idea. So he leaves. About 20 minutes later, he comes back. And he's like, I got him. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> he's, I got two tickets. It's like right up front. And I said, how did you get two tickets? And he said, I talked these two nuns out of, uh, out of their tickets. <laughs> I said, you, you what? 
<laughs> he he said, no, I'm feeling bad now. I'm I'm hammered and I'm feeling bad. I'm like, you shouldn't have talked to the nuns out of me. He's like, oh, they come all the time. They see the Pope all the time. This is our one chance to see the Pope. And I'm like, this is fantastic. Are you sure the nuns are okay? And he's like, absolutely, they're okay. And I'm like, okay, because if they feel bad, I'll feel bad. But if they don't feel bad, I'm going to see the Pope. <laughs> so we we go in. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you sit, and there's nothing to do. And you're like, this is really kind of slow. And then the Pope comes in, and the music starts. Everybody stands up, and it's very, usually very, very restrained. I would think it would be restrained, yeah. yes. But we decided we were, we because were, we were about five or ten people away from the aisle. And uh, the Pope was coming, and we couldn't see past the people that were there. So we got up. You wanted to solve a problem. Yeah. We got up on the little folding chairs. Oh, that no. Yeah. And stood on the folding chairs, and he started saying, it's the Pope. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't believe it's the Pope. Believe it's the Pope right there. And he's like, this is incredible. <laughs> and I said, look at it. Look, look at his shoes. Even his shoes are popish. Look at that. It was, well, they were. They were. They right. were like, you know, I don't even know anymore, but they were fancy shoes. They were like, I don't know, red and either velvet or something and they had pope signs or something on them i don't know but they were fancy shoes apparently because that's all i really remember was like look at his shoes and were they blurry <sighs> to your eye was everything blurry to your eye at this point no for some reason i can see all of it unfortunately <laughs> not from my perspective Somehow or another, my memory is from like a bird's eye view. It's like God gave me a little extra gift. I'm going to make sure <laughs> you see this the way I saw this. <laughs> okay, so you've now stood on a chair and pointed at the, the Pope's feet. And you think this is over at this point? Did they kick you out? Nothing happened? No, no, not exactly. Um, no, I mean, we, it was, I don't want to, you know, let's just say this two days later on the good side, two days later, we, we were flying home and we're walking down the streets of, of Rome. And, you know, there's all these shops for that priests shop at, you know, and they have the cassocks and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're flying coach and my friend is a really good con man and um he said you want to fly first class back and i said how are we going to do that and he's like i got an idea come on come oh, on no. with me oh no and so he <laughs> we get to this store where it's all the you know stuff for you know bishops and stuff and i and i but, but to my credit i said no this is going too far and so we didn't do it um although we we he wanted to dress as a bishop to get moved yeah, up to first class yeah mm -hmm. yeah or just a couple of priests and i i i did i we didn't do it um uh, that's good that's a good choice glenn that was a good choice and then he, we 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 
I wish I could tell you that the story ended with us in coach all the way back home. <laughs> but it Wait. doesn't. Oh my god. It doesn't end in in coach and um I don't think I Ah, uh, we got on the plane and uh, uh my friend had to go to the bathroom. And as uh you know, just about, you know, after the plane, you know, reaches altitude, um, I, uh, I, I hear an announcement uh, that I am uh, on my way home to get married uh, to the <laughs> love of my life who we uh, hadn't seen each other forever and had found each other in a, in a very, uh, you know, a very heartwarming way. And all the stewardesses just thought it was this the greatest story uh, ever. So please, everybody, just give a round of applause. Uh, and I was asked to come up with my friend and have <laughs> champagne in first class <laughs> on the way home. So, wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. It was very. Uh, that's what happens when you're one with a pope. That's what happens. <laughs> I don't think you were one with the pope. On that Holy. Trip. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that. I have to find Thank this you. footage. If there's anyone in the, at the Vatican listening, what year was this? I think 1989. 1989. If anyone yeah. has 1989 Christmas Eve, Eve mass. And you'll yeah. see us. We were there. <laughs> we were there. God, I have to find this footage now. Okay. I no longer have any All other right. career goals. All right. All right. <laughs> I may not have a career. Glenn Beck. Join Glenn, Stu, Pat Gray, Doc Thompson, and Sarah Gonzalez weeknights at 5.30 Eastern on the news and why it matters. Tweet us your questions using the hashtag TheBlazeY and tune into the show to hear the answers at TheBlaze.com slash TV. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. Well, Stu, you just kind of blew this show all to hell. Um, it's the most important show we've done in years. <laughs> I don't Somewhere think so. I got Josh holding in California. He's gonna. He's got some important stuff. We have uh, really important. Uh, you know, we have mm. we have we have somebody to lynch as a mob today. I was interested in that. Yeah, I, I have still to do am. the lynch mob. But I mean, that. I just want to make sure that we understand that somewhere out there exists video of the 1989 or 1990 Vatican Christmas Eve mass. In which you not idiotically sure are standing sure on a chair and pointing at the Pope. Not video of that. There, well, I looked up Pope shoes, by the way. Do a Google search for Pope shoes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so uh, the uh, the papal slippers are made of red velvet or silk, and they are heavily decorated in a gold braid with a gold cross in the middle, mm-hmm. uh, chosen to uh, reflect the blood of. Christ's own bloody feet as he was prodded and whipped and pushed uh, push along the uh, Via uh, Dolorosa on his way to the crucifixion. I don't think they really reflect Christ's bloody feet. They're nice, you know. Uh, yes, they are red. Um, and I just remember them being very impressed. You know, I am sartorial in nature, so... I'm not surprised. Believe me, the shocking part of the story is not the fact that you looked at the dude's shoes. Like, that seems very Glenn Beck-esque. The fact that you were on video, gone through this entire career in front of the media, and no one has been able to unlock video of you 
at the mask, pointing well, at his see, shoes and drunkenly yelling. As I was telling yelling. you this story just a few minutes ago, it really didn't occur to me that you would be pushing for the look for that video. It's interesting because I'm already coming up with a hashtag. Because I think this is something that, that America can unite on. You know, we talk I, about what I can... suddenly have a really throbbing headache. I'm not kidding. Just suddenly, just like right now, a gigantic throbbing headache is because... Because there's a lot of researchers out there <clears throat> that let it uncover mm-hmm. uh, documents, videos, uh, pictures. I was making I, this whole thing up. It didn't. I mean, oh, I don't think that's true. Me. You know what? We can figure that out, though. We don't need to, we don't need to take your word me, for it. You know me. I tell tall tales. See, they have photos, too. So we could probably find you in photos. As pe- as, uh-huh. as you mentioned to me earlier, you're about, what, a third? Mm, I don't remember. I don't recall. On the I, left side, I if you're looking from the back. not recall. Mm-hmm. And you said about nine or ten seats in, I think, was the way you described it. And it. I was heavily intoxicated. I thought you said it didn't happen. I don't. In my imagination, I okay. was heavily intoxicated. I'm willing so. to take your, your your hashtag ideas to get this trending. How uh-huh. do we find the 1989 or 19... This is a long hashtag. 1989 <laughs> or 1990 Christmas Eve mass video at the Vatican. We need a, we need something, a catchy hashtag. Jeez, you know, it was even Pope John Paul. I am so embarrassed. It was Pope John yeah. oh, yeah. Paul. Mm-hmm. I've seen pictures from the event, oh, uh, from the mass. And, uh, I mean, it looks... It looks like the type of thing that you wouldn't want to stand up on a chair and, and, and drunkenly no, point at someone. No, it wasn't. Doesn't no, it seem really like that wasn't. Type of I, I remember his father being very, very clear. Please tell me that was not my son standing on a chair as the Pope came in. That's when it all kind of went. And we realized there were cameras there. What what have we done as a society in which this video? Think about we criticize journalists all the time. How have they not uncovered this already? How how has a major journalistic organization not pulled up this video throughout your this entire run of you? Uh, you know, you were syndi- a syndicated because radio host until seventeen today, years ago. I apparently was very good at keeping the secret. <laughs> I don't even know how it came out. Now I don't know how we started down this, but everyone. You should forget this. These are things that did not happen. This is not the papal story you are looking for. (laughs) You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. So we have a couple of things here. Um, Stu, choose your news. You ready? I'm ready. Power use rises during Earth Hour for first time. (laughs) I like that one. That's huh? pretty solid. Mother crashes car into pole to prove God is real to children. They're both good. I, Choose your news. I Story need one. to know how crashing your car into a pole proves anything about God. Oh, you I can't need... do the math on that? No, yeah, no, I cannot. Police say a mother intentionally crashed her SUV into a pole to prove to her two small children that God is real. The investigators... <laughs> did they? Did the investigators huh? investigate why that would prove that God was real? That's what I'm... No, they just wanted to find out what the, action, what, what the accident okay. was caused by. And uh, the, the, the children uh, told the investigator that, that mom did it on purpose to, to show them that if they believe, God would protect them. 
So would protect them from the pole or protect them from surviving the Anything. crash? Don't with you believe? The pole? Are you not a believer? No, I think I am, but maybe I'm not. Not maybe not enough. Apparently, yeah. You because I've never uh, crashed. I've never intentionally crashed oh, a car yeah. into God a pole. God will save you from anything. Well, because it's weird because yeah. it seems like God, like a big part of Christianity is what happens after you die. So mm-hmm. I don't think He's necessarily saving you from an earthly uh, situation every time. The point is that oh, yeah. there's yeah, something yeah, deeper yeah. than that. Uh, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Are you a believer or not? I Yes, I am. Okay, good. Would you bring in the flamethrower? <laughs> because God will save you from that if you believe. And if you don't believe, you didn't believe enough. I mean, if you burn to like, a crisp, you didn't believe enough. So what you're saying is if I float, you're a witch. But if I drown, I'm not a witch and and therefore cleared from that crime. Correct. That's a wonderful. So if you believe you, I can't burn you to death. Bring the flamethrower in. (laughs) Sitting in the car, her children explained what happened before the crash. The officer said, do you think she did it on purpose? Yeah, said the seven-year-old. Because she turned, her eyes were closed and she was saying, blah, 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 I love God, said one daughter. She didn't want us to have a car accident. She just wanted us to know that God is real. Police. But what, again, why would that prove that God is real, that she crashed into a pole? Like, I can understand saying, I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm going to navigate this street and not run into a pole because God's going to guide me. I can understand that logic. I don't, know, no, I don't think it's a good I idea. I don't know if she had the God is my co-pilot sticker. So like, I mean, if Jesus she had... takes the wheel. Like I could get at least there's a sense to that that theoretically it would make sense. Again, I would not recommend it right now. If you're right. in your car, don't let don't... Jesus take the wheel. He wants right. you to drive your car. I'm pretty sure that's true. I think, but so. maybe it's that I'm not a big enough believer. Boy, is she saying mm-hmm. that God will help me navigate the streets? And then she ran into a pole, therefore disproving God, or? Is, is she saying, hey, I'm going to crash this pole? Away? Did they all walk away? I Did don't know. You haven't away. included that detail. No one was hurt in the accident. Okay, so. Officer is, said it could have been much, much worse. Could, I'm quoting, could have been a lot worse. Could have been heavier traffic at the time. She could have hit the pole at such an angle that she did more damage to the car. But she didn't. You know why? God was her co-pilot. Okay. So she, God navigated her into a lesser impact collision. Yes. I could, I'm fine with that. Oh, yeah, are there you? you go. Yeah, I'm fine yeah. with that. I mean, I protected yeah. the kids, even though the parents are uh, dummy. What was the What was the thing about uh, you know? Don't tempt the Lord. Don't you know? You're not supposed to <laughs> taunt. <laughs> you certainly shouldn't taunt him. Yeah, you're not. Uh, you're not supposed to say, "Hey, Lord, I'll give you this. You do this. Hey, why don't I? You know what? I'm really, really hungry here out in this desert. Why don't you just uh, Why don't you just turn this into a nice meal for me? The sand. Yeah, just so I can show you a magic trick. So I can show my friend over here, who I don't think actually is your friend or mine, but I just want to show him that you're real. So I'm going to fly off of this cliff. No, God doesn't do that, and he doesn't want you to do that. That, That's a bad idea. I mean, perhaps she didn't have a deep doctrinal understanding of the scriptures. Perhaps. 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 But the kids are going to learn a lesson about God they're never going to forget. (laughs) <laughs> they won't. They will remember they that will one. Remember it. I don't know if it works out well, but uh, they will remember you know the what? lesson. Put this in your calendar. Mm-hmm. Put this in your calendar for about ten years because the seven-year-old will be seventeen, <laughs> and let's see if we can find her. 
in 10 years. Because I'd like to say, hey, that whole thing with your mom, I know we're the only ones who remember it, but how did that we work put out? this in the calendar? Yeah. How you doing now? What do you think about God? I think pretty well is the, is the understanding that I would have. Story number two. Power rises in British Columbia during Earth Hour. Despite their best intentions, British, Columbia's, uh, British Columbians increased their power use during Earth Hour for the first time in a decade. BC Hydroelectric says electricity use in the province rose 0.2% from 8.30 to 9.30 compared to the same hour the week before. Earth Hour is an annual World Wildlife Fund event that encourages people across the globe to turn off their lights for one hour to draw attention to climate change. That used to be global warming. Now it's just climate change. But let's remember, it used to be global warming. Why did they change it? Let me read the story, the rest of the story. The increase in electricity is probably due to declining participation. Also, colder weather in many parts of the province. <laughs> in BC Hydro report published this month, the Crown Corporation said seven in 10 survey respondents said they did plan on participating in Earth Hour this year. But the Crown Corporation says it also marks the fifth year in a trend of declining participation in the province. So when you call people up and you survey, seven out of 10 are like, oh, my gosh, yeah. Recycle? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and turn off my lights? You bet. Turn down the air conditioning? Oh, my gosh. I don't, we're thinking about getting rid of our air conditioning. <laughs> Soon as they hang up the phone and they stop the survey, oh, man, they are, they're making plastic in their home. They're making styrofoam and burying it out around their yard just because it'll never, you know, you got to just bury it all around. So we can't, we don't, we don't want it all in one place, bury it all around. And they're doing it with a, like a, like a window air conditioner strapped to their back (laughs) so they don't get hot. Right. But they'll tell you they're all into it. Everybody loves the environment until it affects their life in any way. You know, as, as soon as they, there's a moment they have to lose any of their, uh, niceties in life, they they abandon it. I, this is one of the issues that the environmental movement is really having in that they are trying to figure out ways to tell people, hey, you're involved, right? You're doing something. What you need to do is little steps. Little steps will help. Now, we all know little steps won't help. We, we've talked no, about well, this. little steps do help. They don't help at all. Yes, they do. They do not help at all. They do. They don't. They do. I will tell you why they don't. I will tell you why they do. Sure, let me start. Number one, uh, hey, you guys should drive less. You should uh, buy a hybrid. You should blah, 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 blah. If you turned off, turned off every car and never let any of them run again, you would save about, this is cars and trucks, by the way, the entire transportation sector. If you turned it off tomorrow in the United States, you would serve, you would save about 20% of our emissions and you'd say well that's a it's a big deal now it would still have 80 percent of your emissions still going however you'd save about 20 percent of the emissions problem with that of course is that the united states is only about 20 percent of global emissions so you'd really turning off the number one industrialized transportation sector in the world would save you about four or five percent of global emissions global emissions grow uh, between two or three percent per year so you'd save yourself a couple years if you turned off every motorized vehicle in the United States, 
That is not what they're asking you to do, right? No one's saying you should you shouldn't drive anymore because they know no one can do that. They're saying, "Well, you should you should get a more fuel efficient car. You should what you know what you need to do is is you need to unplug those plugged in uh, uh, appliances when you're not using them. None of this does anything, which is why they constantly express these statistics in things like cars taken off the road or uh you know uh, certain amounts of trees. This is the equivalent of planting four million trees. You know why they say it though? Because million sounds high, but it means nothing. Nothing. Are you done? I am done. Now you're going to tell me why little things do make a difference. Little steps. Little steps. I want you to hear me out. Okay. Okay. You sure? Yeah. I, I owed that to Maybe you after sport. you took my, my point very seriously. Well, I did. Mm-hmm. I did. I listened to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It was riveting. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you have a baby. Mm-hmm. They come out. They pee and poop all over everything. Yes, they yeah, they do tend to. do You that. take the little step of putting a diaper on that child mm-hmm. because telling the child, "Hey, go to the potty. Go 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 into the bathroom and sit on the crapper over there." Baby doesn't understand it. So you you first put the diaper on, mm-hmm. then you 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 start to potty train them, and after like I don't know fourteen years, they start to go crap where they're supposed to go crap. Mm-hmm. But those little steps helped me all the way, so I wasn't cleaning up crap. If I just wanted the big step, I'd have crap all over my house. The, the, yeah, the diaper little is not steps. a little and step; bigger it's steps, a miracle invention. And let me tell you something else: <laughs> big steps are even better when they're, when they're running to the potty. Big steps are better. Little steps help. Just saying. Did now, you let? Did you let? Now wait a minute. You said you would hear me out. I did. I did. Now, all of those diapers are not exactly helping with the planet. No. But that's a completely different story. (laughs) If you listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, it's really good. It's really good. Revisionist history, especially this last season. Uh, I think I I told you to listen to one about Brian Williams. Yeah, and usually when you suggest things, I don't listen, but that one was really a good... (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, uh, a good suggestion. It was fascinating because it was sort of a revisiting of the Brian Williams scandal, um, where if you remember correctly, Brian was uh, a liar. He's a liar, and he because he said he was shot at, and his ho- his helicopter was hit over uh, over Iraq, I believe, in two thousand three ish. And you know, over time, he started off telling the story accurately, and it sort of meshed into this thing where he was taking credit for this heroic act. He told the story on Letterman. And in the end, lost his job and his credibility over it. And Gladwell's uh, case, and it's backed up by a lot of science, which was pretty interesting, is that we as humans believe our memories are perfect video captures of a moment. Mm -hmm. And science and study after study after study shows this, that it's not, that we actually screw these things up all the time. And the way they, uh, quickly, they use these things called flashbulb moments. So like 9-11 is a flashbulb moment. We all remember where we were on 9-11. And scientists, because you know they're nerds and they're using us for their own purposes, every, every time one of these things happen, they do a study called a flashbulb moment study. And they'll go and, and interview all these people about what they were doing at that moment. So right after 9-11, and there's many examples of this, they go and they talk to people and they say, what were you doing at this moment? And they have them write it down in their own handwriting their exact memories of what they were doing. Then they go back to them five and ten years later and say, what were you doing on 9-11? Without showing them the piece of paper. They recount their memories, 
and then they compare them to what they wrote down, and they're in different places. They were on the phone instead yeah. of in person. And people are saying all sorts of major differences. And people will say, "I don't know why I wrote that ten years ago because that's not true. I yeah. don't know why I would lie." And then the researchers like. Okay, so you thought you lied at that point? Yeah, I must have, because I was not there. Yeah, and they, they came up with, the number was 60% of the details of the memories were misremembered in the future. Isn't that the crazy? People actually, over time, sort of build these things, uh, these stories in their head, and they start to believe them. It's not necessarily a, li- a lie because they are trying to better their situation, it is a mistelling of the truth because our memory screws with us over a long period of time. It is really one of the underlying principles of my book that I think, um, you know, will will not be necessarily understood in a in in a just a quick read, um, and that is arrogance. Arrogance uh, leads us to believe that we are right and everything we believe is right. I believe. In the same stuff I've always believed, I believe that that the Bill of Rights, the Constitution in America is is good. But by by focusing on that, you stop listening to what other people are saying. And because they have nothing to teach you, they're just wrong. And if you start to listen to them, you can start to say, oh, oh, oh wait, I see what you're saying here. Okay, you're focused on this. I got, okay, you're right about that. You're right. However, come with me. But because they're not listening to you, you're not listening to them. Nobody says, oh, okay, wait, 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 wait. Yes, you're right about that. How many times have you done that in real life where you have to get through an argument and you're like, oh, okay, wait, 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 wait. Okay, yes, you're right about that, but that's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That's not happening in our society because- Everyone's treating each other like an enemy. Everyone says, you're lying. Here's a case of Brian Williams, who everybody said he was lying. Where science is showing, no, 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 even your memory is 60% wrong. That's pretty remarkable. Humility. Humility is the key to what we're facing. Glenn Beck. All right. Today's segment of postmodern geometry, the hashtag me too dilemma. Here is the problem of the day. We have a lesbian humanities professor at a an elite university who is sexually harassing a gay male student. Who is the victim? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You don't need that much time, right? Of course, it's the uh, professor. Uh, her name is uh, Avital Ronell. She's 66 years old, professor of German and comparative literature at New York University. She apparently is the real victim, even though she allegedly sexually harassed a former student. The New York Times wrote about the whole ordeal in an article talk titled, What Happens to Hashtag Me Too When a Feminist is Accused? Well, we all know the feminist is in the right. Ronell, quite publicly, has been accused of sexually harassing Nimrod Reitman, 34 years old, graduate student and currently a visiting fellow at Harvard. Now, Ronell is an, you know, an academic rock star, as one colleague described him, one of the very few philosopher stars of the world. But the investigation concluded 
that uh, the the teacher, the professor, was the one responsible for sexual harassment, both physical and verbal, to the extent that her behavior was sufficiently pervasive to alter the terms and conditions uh, of the student's learning environment. So she was suspended. The accusations. Ryman's claim that before the school year in 2012, Ronell invited him to stay with her parents in Paris for a few days. Uh, the day he arrived, she asked him to read poetry to her in her bedroom while she took an afternoon nap. He said, that was a red flag. But I also thought, okay, you're here. Let's not make a scene. Then he said, she pulled him into her bed. She put my hands onto her breast and she was pressing herself, uh, her buttocks, onto my crotch. She was kissing me, kissing my hands, kissing my torso. That evening, a similar scene played out again, he said. From emails that he produced, I woke up with a slight fever and a sore throat. I'll try very hard not to kiss you until the throat situation receives security clearance. This is not an easy deferral. Another email. Time for your midday kiss. My image during meditation. We're on the sofa, your head on my lap, stroking your forehead, playing softly with your hair, soothing you. Headache gone yet? Yes. Most starting, uh, startlingly uh, uh, is the one from 50 of her colleagues. All the educators from around the globe. Quote, although we have no access to the confidential dossier, we have worked many years in close proximity to the professor and have accumulated collectively years of experience to support our view of her capacity as a teacher and a scholar, but also someone who has served as a chair of both the departments of German and comparative literature at New York University. We've all seen her relationship with students, and some of us know the individual who has waged this malicious campaign against her, end quote. So the student has been expelled. The professor is fine. Now, want to take a guess where she stands on Trump? She didn't like Donald Trump. Uh, she says, I take it as uh, regular, rigorously necessary that Trump's mouth hole be the flapping aperture to funnel floods of uh, racially unleashed aggression, the toxic spill. Uh, of his language, part of the recourse uh, to crucial intersection where Twitter meets something else. So here we have somebody who is too important to the cause, sexually assaulting someone, a young gay man, and she gets a pass because, well, she's in the right, she's in the right club. She's absolutely in the right club, and she's too important to lose. So um, we have somebody on the phone, and I haven't talked about her yet because I just want to ask her myself one last time before I introduce her. Um, uh, give her the opportunity to back out. Um, because I don't think this is going to go well for her career uh, unless we <laughs> change her name. Uh, this is, I mean, this is how crazy things are, uh, have gotten. Uh, can we bring her on real quick? Is she there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, are you sure you want to have this conversation on the air? I know the rules of not saying where you work, 
but you're willing to put your name out there, which, I mean, you know, there's this private eye called Google <laughs> that will find you quickly. And I don't think this is going to go well for you in the long run. I, I appreciate it. I want to tell your story. But are you sure? I have been praying for a couple of days about it. And I really feel like I'm supposed to be here giving hope to other conservative professors, giving hope to conservative parents who are worried about sending their kids off to college that... I'm here to speak truth, but I also need to be respectful of the place that I work and the people I work with. And so it is a very difficult decision. So I agree. Okay. You're right. It is a risk. I know you want to give your name, but I'm I'm not going to give it. If you at some point want to give your name, that's fine. But uh, I, I, I think you're just I think that's just opening up a world of hurt that you don't need to go through. Um, you are a psychology professor. Yes. Um, and you uh, have been an adjunct professor at a uh, at a good college, and you're looking for full time work, and you don't think it's going to happen uh, because of what colleges are like right now. Do I have that Definitely. right? Yes, because there's a very clearly documented hiring bias, both an anti conservative hiring bias and an anti Christian hiring bias, particularly in the humanities and social sciences, which is where psychology falls. Okay. Um, you, you have been teaching over the past eight years, and you have said that there is a, a shift in, in attitude, um, even by the students now. Can you tell me about that? Definitely. Uh, when I first started teaching, it was exactly what I pictured as far as the dynamic between the professor and the students, where there was a clear distinction in roles, there was respect. And over the last, say, three to four years, I've noticed a shift where progressively students are becoming more emboldened. They see a blurring between the lines. There's um, less respect for me as an authority figure, and they feel like they can just challenge me. They rarely do it in class. Most of the time they do it online. So they'll send me an email or they'll post something in the end of class survey, which is supposed to be anonymous. But they're, and some of them have gone to the administration behind my back to try to, you know, complain or what have you because they feel that I'm too strict or they want to have accommodations where accommodations aren't due. So it's become more of a place of incivility on the student's part. Luckily, I've been able to manage it pretty well, and it hasn't escalated to the point where some professors, say like the professor at Berkeley who had students disrupt the final exam to protest oh, yeah. it, or Brett Weinstein who had his class you know, disrupted by protesters. I haven't experienced anything like that. Most of the time, the students are good in the classroom. It's outside of the classroom, especially when they feel emboldened by being able to post online or you know, do something anonymous. You um, you were teaching an undergraduate course on research methods, and um, you said, "Okay, let's look at the campus assault study, uh, the campus climate survey that came out in 2015. And let's look at this. And what did you have the students do? It was a uh, the point of the class and the lecture was talking about research validity. So looking at research studies and saying, is this actually valid? Does it does the results indicate what people are saying the results indicate. And I decided to take a risk and be bold and have them analyze the the campus sexual assault study and look to see, one, does it have, like, can it be generalized? Does it have external validity? Do, and also, does it have internal validity? Do the way that they define the terms hold up to construct validity? 
And it was amazing to watch the class just become shocked because they've all heard the statistics cited, but when they actually dug into the study, they started to see its limitations very quickly. And to be honest, I've never been more terrified in a class than when I was standing there and openly challenging this study and guiding my students to think critically and analyze what the study actually said. When you say you have never been more terrified, what were you terrified of? I was terrified that I would have a student or students in the class that would react poorly (laughs) to having that cognitive dissonance because clearly that's what they were experiencing. Uh, I was terrified that some would march out of the class and go and tell the administration. And I probably waited about a week or two (laughs) um, thinking that the other shoe was going to drop. That somewhere, some way I offended a student that, you know, having their worldview or having this information challenged was going to create enough dissonance that they were going to react negatively. Uh, In this instance, it didn't happen, but it's definitely a risk every time I do it. And it it wasn't just that one. I I also had them challenge the wage gap study. I also had them challenge the climate change study that everybody quotes the 97% agree. Um, I took a lot of risks in order to teach my students that they need to think for themselves. They need to actually analyze these studies uh, rather than, you know, citing the talking points that the media and others have pulled from it. When you ask your class for counter arguments to things like microaggression, what happens? Most of the time, they don't understand what I'm saying. Uh, They think that there's just one position out there. They've never heard that there's anything else. They've never heard an alternative position. So there was an assignment that I had to use. I didn't have a a choice. I couldn't modify it. But there was a, a question in there about microaggressions. So I told them the way I want you to answer it is to present me both sides. I want you to make an argument that microaggressions exist and are detrimental. And then I want you to make an argument against it. And I had to provide all of the resources for them to make the counter argument because they didn't know that a counter position existed. They had no idea how to start looking for that. Uh, it was pretty amazing to to see that, that they, they, they weren't even aware that there's alternative positions to some of these things that have just been fed to them uh, through their education. So I have found, well, two things. How do we expect to have a free uh, people and a free press if people are being churned out in colleges and universities who don't even know how to look for the other side of the story? Um, But I have found that um, many times the students are hungry to see the other side. They're they're excited when they see, wait a minute, I haven't heard that. Even if it doesn't change their mind, they're excited about it. Is that your experience? I would say for the most part that I've seen... Uh, most students, when they get exposed to this information, when they, they get exposed to alternative, uh, let's say, worldviews, something other than postmodernism, other, something other than critical theory, when they get exposed to uh, alternatives, it's, it's exciting to see because they realize that they aren't critical theorists. They realize that they aren't postmodernists. They actually do believe in objective reality and objective truth. And there's almost a relief for a lot of them that there's something out there that more closely aligns with the way that they do think or the way that they were raised. But I always have a group in there that resists. 
that they are just so dead set in what they've been taught Mm -hmm. that anything that brings that cognitive dissonance, uh, they attack. You know, one of the things I specialize in is actually teaching about uh, marriage and relationships. And so I talk about gender differences, and I always have at least one student who yes buts me all the way through that lecture because they want to deny the fact that there's anything um, either biologically based or neurologically based that distinguishes the genders and distinguishes how men and women experience life and filter information and how we communicate, which clearly there is. But I always have somebody in there that will push back. But the majority uh, seems to really, like you said, be excited and hungry for it. Uh, In the 1990s, I read a quote from Immanuel Kant, and he said, uh, there are many things that I believe that I shall never say, but I shall never say the things that I do not believe. Uh, That terrified me. I couldn't even understand a world that where somebody would have to hide what they really believed. I thought, what kind of world and how blessed are we that the world is not that way? We're that way now, aren't we? Definitely. That's at least in the environment in which I work. But I would say also in social media, that's why I've gotten off social media, because that's a risk to my career. Um, that's why I'm very guarded and very calculated about, you know, what I choose to say and bring up uh, in class with my students, but also the way that I conduct myself around colleagues. Okay. It, it's absolutely true. All right. I want to take a quick break and then I want to come back and I, uh, you found, uh, I think an unlikely friend, um, a strange bedfellow that uh, gave you some advice. I want to kind of talk about that when we come back with a uh, professor of psychology Uh, that is going to remain nameless. This should tell you where we are as a nation. This person, I think if they gave their name, they would be out by the end of the day Um, just for saying what she just said to you. More in just a second. Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. Addicted to Outrage. A new book from best-selling author Glenn Beck. Because everybody needs to be outraged about something that is entirely meaningless. Something that really makes no difference or is none of my business whatsoever. But I need to be really outraged. Addicted to outrage. To stir us up and get us toward anger. And we are addicted. Addicted to outrage. Pre-order your copy now at Amazon.com or download a preview on iTunes. We're talking to a, uh, a woman who is a, uh, a Christian, a conservative, and a university professor. Uh, she is a, uh, uh, an adjunct professor of psychology, um, and uh, she currently is working at a, uh, a more conservative or Christian uh, uh, college, but is um, looking for you know, another placement and is little concerned about it. I have... Uh, I am not going to tell you her name. She is more than free to uh, volunteer that if she wishes. Um, but I think she's incredibly brave for, for coming on the program and saying what it's really like um, in the university uh, system, especially if you're a teacher. And you mentioned uh, postmodern, postmodernism earlier and how students uh, don't react uh, positively to it when given an alternative. Um, and I think, isn't that, though, the the reason why you're not going to be allowed to succeed as a professor because if there the whole premise of postmodernism is that there can't be another option because if there's another option i mean human beings are going to go towards an objective truth 
Yes, definitely. And that is something that I'm mindful of, but I feel that that's why I'm there. I feel like I'm called into this to be a light in the darkness and I present alternatives, but I do not proselytize. I do not indoctrinate students to my way of thinking like some of my colleagues may be doing mm. to their way of thinking. Uh, I feel that that is why I'm here. That's my my motivation. So that's why I take those risks is if I didn't take those risks, I wouldn't be fulfilling my purpose. I will tell you the best professors um, that I've ever had, best teachers I've ever had were ones where I didn't know their opinion. I had no idea. I, I would think they're arguing this so hard. This is clearly their opinion. And then they would flip and all of a sudden they'd be arguing so hard. You're like, wait a minute. I thought you believed. No, they never said that. They're just arguing, showing you both sides and pushing you up against the wall on both sides. I think, though, I think that is the way education should be. I agree. And that's exactly how I try to approach it. So you um, uh, you you met with uh, Eric uh, Weinstein uh, Stein and um, and he was from Evergreen College. And if people don't know what he went through, uh, he is a he's not a guy who's actually, you know, probably agrees with you on very much uh, personally, um, but he was pushed up at Evergreen College, which is more radical than Berkeley, and went through hell. I'd like you to talk about um, meeting with him and what you guys talked about and, and how that all went, what advice he gave to you when we come back. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. We're talking to an adjunct professor of psychology who will remain nameless, uh, and uh, we're not going to say where she works either, uh, due to fear of uh, reprisals. Um, she'd like to have a job, uh, but she is uh, she's talking about what it's like to be a conservative and a uh, and a Christian and a professor at the same time. Those things don't seem to go hand in hand anymore, uh, and uh, and now you know why she's not going to be uh, named here. Um, you, when you started, um, looking for another job, uh, and you realized I'm, everything is a trigger. Everything on my resume is a trigger to say no to, um, you actually sought out and, and met, uh, Eric Weinstein. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I I met Eric Weinstein. He's actually Brett Weinstein's brother. They're right. both a part of the intellectual dark web. Brett's the one that was at Evergreen, whereas oh. Eric is a mathematician and Thank an economist. You. But he's also very much a part of academia. Thank you. And I got to briefly encounter him a couple of months ago, and I decided to ask for his advice because, yes, I am preparing to start looking for full-time employment, and my resume screams Christian. You can't hide it. <laughs> and... I brought that up to him. I said, I'm a conservative. I'm a Christian. I teach in psychology. I'm looking for full-time work. Do you have any advice for me? And he said, you definitely have two strikes against you. He goes, I'm not going to lie. You have two strikes against you. The only way that you're going to find full-time employment is you're going to have to find something and make it your thing. And I told him about my approach to teaching, uh, that I try to be balanced. I try to present both sides. I focus on critical thinking and analysis. And he goes, then that's it. Make that your thing. You're going to basically have to market yourself as, you know, this particular approach in order to stand out. 
but he he very much confirmed my fears that it's those are two strikes against me and then I'm I'm I have an uphill climb in order to find full-time employment. What did you think when you saw what his brother went through at Evergreen? It was scary because if you recall that was the same time period that Milo Yiannopoulos experienced the protesters at Berkeley. So it was almost like this weird moment in history where the shift was very obvious and very clear and it was happening at two different universities where these students felt so emboldened that they could behave this way and then I mean, they held they it, held him against his will in the library for several hours for a mock trial and yeah. several of the professors that were there uh, were almost testifying against him in this in this kangaroo court i mean it's bizarre Yes, and those same students um, held the, I think it was either the dean or the president of the university, held yes. him hostage, wouldn't even let him go to the restroom by himself. Correct. And then the security on campus told Brett Weinstein, don't come to campus because they're going car by car looking for you. <laughs> it was insane. To, and this is not a big university. That's actually a pretty small college in Washington. And the idea that, that students were getting away with this behavior, uh, it definitely is, is scary to, to think about what might happen because he's actually a liberal. He's, he still says he's a liberal. He's, a, he, he's an evolutionary scientist. Yeah, There's like is. very little uh, common ground here with most conservatives. He is a, you know, he's a diehard liberal, but he's a classical liberal that says, I want stats. I want proof. I, I, I you know, let's, let's use the age of enlightenment, but that is what, postmodernism and and i think universities are trying to crush right now is the 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 modern world the the world that was created through the enlightenment definitely and that's something that i've heard both brett and eric weinstein talk about is that they are against postmodern thinking as well and that's where we find alignment is even though politically yes. we may diverge, they're both atheists, I'm a Christian, but yet we've aligned on this common cause of saying, hold on a second, you don't get to just redefine reality. You don't get to just redefine language. You don't get to personally choose what is truth and what is not. He was one of the most popular professors at Evergreen. Everybody loved him. Highest, highest marks from students. But because he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a scientist and X and Y mean something. <laughs> There's an X chromosome and Y chromosome. Uh, it doesn't mean that you deny that. It doesn't mean that I now have to go in with your delusion. There's an X and Y. Let's talk science. That made him uh, have to have police protection and actually start to teach his class out in the public square because they said we're not going to be able to protect you in the university. It's crazy. It is. And it's, it's absolutely terrifying. And that's why at the university I'm at right now, it seems like the students are pretty evenly divided. So it doesn't seem like I'd be overwhelmed like I would at a more liberal college like that. But when I'm going to apply at other universities, I, I don't know what kind of climate is there. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is it's not just a question of, will they even call me for an interview? Like, will I even get hired? But if they do, do I even want to work there? Because, you know, less than 8% of psychology professors identify as conservative. And many universities don't have a single conservative on staff, period. So that's another thing I have to think about is not just, will they hire me, but is that an environment that I'm going to even be able to be successful? Am I going to be able to even teach? Do you know who David Glertner is? 
No, I've not heard that name. David Kalertner was actually the first guy the Unabomber tried to kill. Um, he lives in an awful lot of pain now. Um, uh, he survived. Uh, he is a futurist, but he is also the son of a rabbi, deeply religious. He is a math professor. He won. I don't remember what he invented, but he invented, you know, I don't know, the cursor or something for Apple. Uh, they took that technology and made it theirs. He sued them. I think he won like half a billion dollars in a lawsuit. The guy's an absolute genius, um, but is very concerned about the universities. He's at Yale now, uh, not real popular on campus. Uh, I think he is with the students because he's so smart. Um, but we have talked uh, before about the university system is coming apart. It's just it's just not going to be there, you know, 10 years of the way it is now. Um, it won't work. Um, and being able to do things online. Have you thought about doing a class online? I have been asked to do classes online, and I've tried it. The problem with being a professor online, at least with the way that, that it's been given to me by this university, I don't know how other universities do it, is I basically just grade there's no lecture. There's no lesson. Uh, they're given a textbook to read. They're given assignments to do. And then I just show up and grade. Hmm. And that's frustrating because yeah. then there's no teaching. Yeah, no, that's not the... You can, may I put you in touch with uh, David Gelertner? Because yes. um, you should talk to him. He might be able to uh, advise you. Or maybe if I'll ask him and see if he'll come on and, and the two of you can have a conversation because I think it would be helpful for a lot of people who are in your situation, whether they're at a university level or not, just trying to find their way through this madness of this world and uh, and and how to navigate it. Definitely. Great. That sounds great. Going to give you a, another chance. I suggest you don't take it, but if you wanted to introduce yourself, you may. To be honest, it's it's a really big risk to do that. And like you said, that Google machine is pretty powerful. Yep, that's fine. I just wanted to I just wanted to give you the opportunity. I'm I applaud you for not taking it. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, we'll be in touch. God bless. Thank you. You bet. Really? I cannot believe the world we live in now. It's the Immanuel Kant thing you were talking about earlier. You know, I mean, it's we're really in a time where you can't stand up as a person and say the things you believe and how many of us are really saying the things that we believe i mean that's see that's my problem with today's society is have you really thought all this stuff through are you really that sure are they are the things that you're saying let me say it let me say it this way um i remember when i had to go on tour for the christmas sweater uh, and that was the hardest thing I've ever done because it was a personal story. I remember that yeah. of my of my mother's death, and you were a wreck. I was a wreck. Period. Yes, it was horrible. What you didn't know at the same time that that was happening, I was under the um, the first real active death threats that I had. Um, I was still working at CNN, and I had uh, these nine eleven truthers. Thank you, Alex Jones. Um, coming after me and saying that I was the cover-up guy. I was the CIA operative and the cover-up guy uh, for uh, 9-11. And uh, they were threatening us. We actually had one of our tour buses run off the road. We had to switch tour buses all the time. Um, so nobody knew which one I was in. Um, and luckily, the one that I wasn't in uh, was run off the road. 
uh, I had a guy come up into me uh, online. The, the key words were all traders. What was it? All traders will be eliminated, I think. Um, and uh, I had to go into crowds every single day. And um, knowing that there was somebody in there that probably wanted to kill me. And a guy came up and I every spider sense in me just went off. And it was like this guy, this guy, this guy. My security felt it, too. They came right to my side, and I'm like, I'm not going to be afraid. I am going to shake his hand and wish him Merry Christmas. And I stuck my hand out, and I said, Merry Christmas. And he had his hands in his pockets, and he said, all traders must be. And he started to take his hand out of his pocket, and he was on the ground before he knew it. Uh, and I remember, I remember sitting in the back of the tour bus and saying, I will not die for the things that I do not believe. I will not die for stupid stuff uh, because I said something and I was, you know, just going off half cocked or it was funny. I am not going to die for that. What is it that you're worth? It's worth dying for. And I got through that time by imagining the worst thing that could happen. And to me, the worst thing that could happen, I envisioned myself on the sidewalk, knowing that that was the last few moments I had, and I was nowhere near my family, and I would never be able to say goodbye to them. And I imagined the worst thing, so then I wasn't afraid of it anymore. Um, strangely for me, I don't know if that's the healthy thing to do or not, but strangely for me, it worked. That and a pact with myself don't say anything that you don't believe. Um, how many of us have done that? How many of us have had to? Our last guest probably has. Not die, but not be able to work again. We're, we're entering the time that I have warned about for so long. Um, and I've, I've told you, you're going to be mad. You're going to be angry. There are going to be people that want to take you to that anger and have you express that anger, and it will be the wrong direction. We are, we are encouraged now to embrace our outrage. We are encouraged to just ratchet it up. Say it back. I'm tired of people saying it and just taking the punch. I'm telling you, that is the wrong direction. The right direction is to take a moment before you go online, and I don't know if you can do this without the real threat. But that threat will come to you. And before you go online, before you start to have a conversation, ask yourself, am I willing to literally fight over this? Am I willing to literally be beaten in the streets for this? Am I willing to never be able to work again for this? Am I willing to die for what I'm about to say? If you take that attitude and you couple it with courage that you will say the things that you believe we'll be able to back away from the edge and the precipice and we'll be able to save the rights of all mankind even those we vehemently disagree with so yesterday I uh, got on my wife's what is it, a Peloton bike? Oh, no. Oh, good God. Good God. First of all, oh, no. 
Stop with the clips on the shoes and everything else. What a scam this whole thing is. That's just to make you buy the shoes. And, just and make the you buy the shoes. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, well, I'm afraid my feet are going to fly off. No, my feet have never flown off any bike in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm Possibly you're not using it at the highest level. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw that out there that maybe... Well, here's an idea. Mm-hmm. Then make it so I could use it at the lowest level and the highest level. So you don't have to have the stupid clips. What a ridiculous... It's a scam. The thing I love about that bike, because we have, we have one as well, is it's like $2,000 for this bike that you buy and you know my wife had to have it and then what they do the reason why it's a whatever it is two thousand dollar bike is because it's got this giant screen on it and you can't watch tv on you can't watch tv you got to watch their classes i don't want to watch their classes by the way they charge you 34.95 a month to access it's incredible wait i'm paying you're paying monthly for that thing too after you pay the thousands of dollars it is a fantastic business it's a scam. I'm, I, I, I was more, riding that bike. I was just getting more and more pissed off at it. I'm, a, am, I'm in capitalistic awe of that company. And by the way, can I just ask a question? I know this dates me, mm-hmm. but when the hell did when did when when did riding a bike become spinning? <laughs> you, I mean, as of four minutes ago, I had, I had no, no idea. idea. That's people would say I'm going to a spinning <laughs> class. I don't know. You plates on a stick or something. I don't know what the hell you're doing. I don't care. I'm never going to go. <laughs> what a stunner you brought it to, to things in the kitchen. Right. I mean, uh, no, you're, you're legitimately that far away from gym culture. I am that, that far away. This is not a new development. No, I know way. it's not a new development, but it's a stupid development. Glenn Beck. Mercury. Mercury.